Hello, and welcome to Music Therapy and Beyond. I'm Elizabeth, and today I am very excited to share my interview with Claire Getty with you. I had the distinct pleasure of attending the University of Kansas with Claire many years ago, and it was such a privilege to learn from her and with her during that period of time. And she just has so much to offer our profession. So I really, really hope that you enjoy this interview. But before we get to that, let's learn a little bit about Claire. Claire Getty is professor of music therapy at the Grieg Academy Music Therapy Research Center at the University of Bergen in Norway. Claire's research centers on how music and the relationships that are enabled through musicking serve as resources for health in intensive medical contexts. Claire has published research and theoretical work in the area of music therapy as procedural support for invasive medical procedures, music therapy for hospitalized children at risk for traumatization, and resource-oriented approaches to music therapy for parents of premature infants. Claire is also the co-editor-in-chief of the open-access, social justice-oriented online journal, Voices, a world forum for music therapy. Before we get to the episode, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Music Therapy and Beyond is sponsored by Bear Paw Creek, the maker of creative movement products that will inspire you. Bearpaw Creek equips teachers, therapists, and parents as they seek to enrich the lives of others through creative movement products and music. Bearpaw Creek understands the importance of music and movement for developing healthy minds and bodies of all ages. We at Music Therapy and Beyond especially love the Connect to Stretchy Band, which has a buckle system that allows you to use the bands straight or buckled into a circle. They also carry a colorful line of ribbon and chiffon streamers, creative movement scarves, balloon balls, and square and textured bean bags. Bear Paw Creek's creative movement products are proudly 100% manufactured in the heart of the country in Missouri, in the United States of America. Find what you need today at bearpawcreek.com. And don't forget to follow them on social media at Bear Paw Creek. Let's get to the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. Thank you, Elizabeth. (laughs) So nice to have you all the way from Norway. I'm so excited to see you. It's been many, many years since I've seen you in person. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be with you, even if it's virtual. (laughs) Yes. I really, I did the math this morning. I was like, yeah, okay. I think it's been, well, it's 14 years since I met you. And then I think maybe something like 10 years since I've physically seen you in person. Yeah. Yeah. I've been here for eight years already. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's really pad. wild. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. We're very excited to talk about your experience as an expat, as a researcher, all the things. Um, but before we get to all of that, I know that our listeners would really love to just hear a little bit about your journey, how you became a music therapist how you became a researcher, a professor, how you ended up in Norway. So as much or as little as you feel comfortable sharing about your professional journey, we would love to hear it. Sure. I'll try to make it concise. <laughs> it <laughs> doesn't have on. to be. <laughs> uh, 
No, so I I started out, I guess maybe I should say that I'm a daughter of an engineer um, and um, a homemaker. Um, so partly I always knew when I went into music in my undergraduate degree that I had to do something practical. I had to make sure that I could have an income and support myself thereafter. Uh, so I had thought about that, but for whatever reason, I didn't really know about music therapy until I got into undergraduate school. Um, so I was double majoring actually in flute performance and French. And at some point I sort of thought, what, what am I actually going to do <laughs> as a profession or a career in these two areas that I'm not so interested in spending endless hours in the practice room and using my efforts to perfect something on my instrument. For me, the the joy and the meaning of music was doing it in relation to other people and in collaboration with other people. And I happened to pick an instrument based on what an older sister of my friend played. So it wasn't like I really had a great attachment to my main instrument anyway, but I just uh, kept on playing that because it enabled me to have a way to make music with other people and be a part of an orchestra um, or an ensemble. And that was more interesting to me at that time. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew there was something very important in music. I also had some personal uh, experiences of very salient um, oper or times where music was used in mourning and in loss um, that were very strong and made me realize that when there are no words that you have music and that it has such a broad range of ways that it expresses the human condition and all of the existential things we grapple with uh, without having to put that into words. And to me, that was um, something that felt very important. And I knew I had to go towards that and wasn't quite sure how. Um, so at like I was saying, at some point I realized I need to do something that combines these things. I was also interested in psychology and medicine and neurology. And for a while thought, should I do music, neuroscience or psychology or become a social worker or <laughs> um, go yeah, work in other countries or in places that, that needed support? Um, and I finally heard about music therapy and then realized, oh, this is something that could combine those things, which is a common, I know, a common theme for music therapists. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I found my way into music therapy. And then in my training, um, there was a certain orientation that was mostly cognitive behavioral, um, strong in research, strong in theory development. And that, that was a, a great starting point for me and a great foundation. And then when I went into practice, I realized, oh, there's so much more in different ways of understanding the practice orientation that uh, expanded my my um, view there. Yeah. Um, and it was in practice, actually, in New York City with uh, children in the hospital. And I also worked alongside that with adults with HIV and AIDS who had, many of them had histories of substance use and very difficult um growing up in very difficult life situations that they had lived through. Um, and I, I like that balance of these the different areas. And what I found most interesting was trying to understand what's going on in the interpersonal interactions uh, within someone when they make a discovery about themselves with music or when they connect with someone else through music. Uh, so those processes were very interesting to me. And eventually after several years of practice, I thought I, I have a, an ability to be very detail-oriented and think systematically and 
um, go in depth with with um, things that I'm interested in. And I thought maybe I should try to use that in a way to to contribute to our field or to challenge our field, but in a on a larger level than the one-to-one -one interaction with um, the people that I was working with in music mm -hmm. therapy. Uh, so at some point I thought, oh, this this I could expand research, but I, I definitely want to go beyond and challenge and question what I learned about research in my master's degree. Uh, so during my PhD, uh, I really did that and was quite interested to break out of the mold of sort of an objectivist epistemological framework yeah. <laughs> and approach to research and see, okay, what else is out there and how can we understand what knowledge is and how, how can we understand how we develop knowledge through research? Who is it? Is it constructed? Does it exist already? And we uncovering it. Um, so then I started getting more into uh, philosophy of science and understanding epistemology and other aspects that lay behind how we understand research. And that was a lot more interesting to me because it was sort of taking the the mask off or something and revealing, oh, this is really, <laughs> this is huge out there and endless. <laughs> and now um, what do we do with it? So that expanded my interest in research. And I have been someone who's always had a, a variety of ways that I am interested in engaging research. And I also want to um, challenge my own self and my assumptions. So that's partly why I ended up becoming an expat or moving out of the context in which I had lived and, and worked mm -hmm. in the United States, because I wanted to be challenged and, and open things up. Yeah. You were asking some massive questions while you were in school. <laughs> but I think that's explains perfectly why you are a researcher, because that's what I think of when I think of researchers. They want to keep asking the questions and keep looking wider and bigger and farther, um, because there are more questions. Every time you answer a question, there's another question that yes. follows it, and there's more to learn. And that's what's really cool about research, I think. So... Um, yeah, I think that's really amazing. And it sounds like it fits your personality perfectly and just the way you think about the world. So that's really cool to hear how you got to that point. And it doesn't sound like maybe you always pictured being a researcher or a professor, that maybe your journey was a little more. Yeah. Um, that's very true. Linear. I'm someone who doesn't want to know what's coming up in the future, actually. Uh, Somehow, I, I'm, I've never been the person to say, oh, I want this and this and this out of my life to get married, have children, have a house like that. Mm -hmm. That's never actually popped into my mind. It's more of uh, what is most important to me and what what do I follow or invest in or spend my time in. Um, and I, I want it to be unexpected and unknown. I, I think it would... <laughs> Yeah, very boring if I just decide I'm going to do this and I'm going to follow that and become that. So, no, I didn't know I'd be become a researcher. I mean, that's part of my identity. It's not my sole identity, um, but it became something that seemed like, OK, this is maybe a good place for me to use my my efforts and my time. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe there's some some aspect that I can bring to this that might be unique or or complement what's being done by all the other great people that we have in our field and other fields that inform us. Um, so yes, in some ways it was kind of unexpected to find myself doing that. Mm -hmm. And definitely very unexpected to be doing that in a, in a different country than the one yes. where I was <laughs> <laughs> And we're gonna get to that in a minute. I did uh, wanna mention 
that in our show notes, I'm going to be linking some of the research articles that I can find free access to of yours because you mm-hmm. have done some really wonderful research that even the research you're doing from afar is contributing to our field in the US. And I think that's one of the cool things about music therapy is that it does cross borders because music is a universal language and we all do tend to use it very similarly. So I'm going to share a lot of that with our listeners in case they're unaware of your research, because I think it's really important and um, special and I really enjoy um, digesting it. So thank you for that. Sure. Um, And you kind of answered this a little bit, but I'd love to hear a little bit more of what you do like about research, about being a researcher. What are some things that you really like about it? I guess it's because it it reflects that desire I have to um, open things up, um, question things, and try to understand why or how something's happening. I remember in New York, I was called in for jury duty at one point. (laughs) And I was a consultant, mostly a music therapist. So that meant if I was on jury duty for two or three weeks, I wouldn't have any income for that time. Um, So it was a hardship. But I do remember that during the questioning of the potential jurors, um, I realized that the questions they were asking us was they were impacting how we were understanding what was going on. They were already sort of biasing us in the way that they questioned us. <laughs> I remember asking, it's like, excuse me, but isn't it so that the way that you're asking this question right now will make us make this assumption that we could potentially influence our opinions <laughs> later in the in our decision as jurors? And then I got kicked out. <laughs> so I was not called upon. No more questions. But I realized like I have a I have trouble sort of holding my mouth when I'm curious about something. Um, and then also feel sort of free to to question <laughs> things. <laughs> And so um, sometimes people aren't pleased with that and, it, you know, it can cause some problems. But I think that's what's interesting to me about research is that yeah. um, for me, it's not, again, based on my assumptions of what is possible to know and how we know things. I don't believe that there is a, a, a single truth out there or that there is a knowledge already existing. I believe that humans have a hand in creating that and anything that we do with research is a construction to some degree of of the partners that are involved in that. So I'm interested to to bring that message out to a larger audience so that people don't um, just ingest research without questioning some of the assumptions behind Mm -hmm. how it's generated and created. Uh, At the same time, it is complex, as you were mentioning earlier, and there are different forms of research. There are different um, types of power that come with certain uh, methods, methodologies, yeah. and forms of research uh, with certain audiences that have political import, that have um, influence on policies and and whatnot. So um, I also acknowledge that and and realize that our field obviously has to engage in a broad range of of methodologies and ways of doing research. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also do as well uh, as a part of realizing that there are different considerations and things that we weigh when we engage in in research. And ultimately we want to make the world a tiny bit better place or (laughs) contribute to something to reducing um, people's suffering or to creating connection or to promoting health. Um, But there are different ways to do that. And yeah, we're always compromising. It's always a compromise of some sort when you're doing research. You're you're always telling just a piece 
of some sort of story. Yes. <laughs> so it's important to acknowledge that. Well, and it seems like too that that focus is important. If you get off topic or you go too broad with it, then you aren't going to be able to answer the questions very well. So you kind of have to have a lot of patience too, it seems. So like, this is the piece that we're going to look at right now. And then maybe we'll get to these other pieces the next time we get to talk about this topic or yeah. ask more questions. Because That's yeah. exactly true. And unfortunately, that doesn't work very well in the time of Twitter and things where people <laughs> want a small little bit of information and they just want to look at one little piece or they want to reduce a large complexity into a couple mm -hmm. of words. Uh, and you're always just getting a little bit of the story. Yeah. Even right now, we're writing our main time point paper for a large randomized control trial. And, and the way that we're writing the manuscript is in order to submit it to um, a medical journal. And of course, mm -hmm. there they value very short, concise stories. Yep. <laughs> and then you can have other supplementary information that um, broadens that a, a tiny bit. Um, but you're compromising there and having a, a little bit of a, a message that you can give with tiny bits of details shoved in there in a very concise way, if you can do that subtly. <laughs> um, but it's it's always a compromise. And then even with that reduction, there's some complexity in that, but then the person who reads it probably just reads the abstract or the concluding paragraph or something like that. And then maybe they reduce that to five words or 10 words. And when yep. they say, this is what music therapy does or it doesn't do. <laughs> yep. um, so I think as humans, we just naturally reduce things and um, take a piece that is most salient to us and disregard everything else. So the, the trick with research is trying to contextualize things and not lose the context if possible yep. and to appreciate that complexity, but then also realizing it's sort of out of your control at some point. Yeah, I remember when can't remember what the piece of research was, but something came out about singing and the transmission of, you know, respiratory illness. And mm. it got reduced very quickly on the internet and really cost music therapists quite a bit of work during the pandemic, because then hospitals were seeing this article or this retweet of this article and saying, okay, singing's bad, so you can't sing, so you can't be here. Mm. Um, and then it was really problematic for a lot of people. And it took a lot of education to be like, okay, this was one article from one person one time, like this wasn't, you know, a bunch of different studies that were done on this topic. We're still learning about how this actually works. And I think it was quite difficult for a lot of people to recover from that because they had to provide so much education around what's actually happening when we sing and how we protect our clients when we're providing therapy and that singing is not the only thing that we do in music therapy, that there's other things that we do. Um, so yeah, it can be kind of a double-edged sword, it seems. It's great to be yeah. able to get a nugget of information that's really powerful for people, but it can also cause harm if it's misinterpreted or um, not disseminated in the right way. Yes, and, and we can see from our um, preliminary time points of this large trial called Long Step, it's a longitudinal randomized control trial of music therapy for um, premature infants and their parents, where we're using a form of music therapy where we support parents to learn how to uh, use their voices and adapt it mm -hmm. to meet the needs of their infant in the moment. Mm -hmm. So it's parent led in a way, and it's directed at the infant and the infant directs it as well by their, um, their signals and their cues, behavioral cues mm -hmm. in the moment. Um, but 
we saw from our, our published um, results of discharge that there wasn't any differences that was statistically significant between the groups in bonding, which was our main outcome. And then we have already heard some feedback from very concerned music therapists saying, you know, our, our neonatologists on our unit saw this article and are concluding that music therapy doesn't work. And then I say, okay, well, turn back to that person, <laughs> bringing them the meta-analyses we have that pulled together several RCTs <laughs> in order to have a, a larger um, power in order to say, okay, across studies, what are we seeing when we can pull together this data? And there we see positive effects of music therapy and you can't reduce one in, one study with one intervention with one set of outcomes that says, okay, there's no relationship between this particular intervention and these particular outcomes, mm -hmm. not between, we're not saying between <laughs> music therapy and all potential outcomes <laughs> right. and all forms of music therapy. And you can't do that. You can't reduce it that much. And I think if music therapists can get a little bit faster and a little bit uh, more willing to counter and go back and be strong in their education and what they have to bring and secure in that to counter and say, okay, open up any uh, issue of the JAMA <laughs> Journal of the American Medical Association um, or Lancet or something else. And you can see how many interventional studies don't have significant results. Right. And they, you know, this is par for the course for behavioral research, for interventional research, um, cancer treatments, you name it, mm -hmm. uh, that, that we are not alone in this, but it's very easy for other people, like you were saying, to, to shorten things and reduce them and just say music therapy doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's not true for, for the first. <laughs> um, and it's not responsible either. So right. we do as music therapists have to sort of stand up to that and um, counter that actively. Yeah. Well, and that confidence can come from actually reading and understanding the research that's been done and staying up to date on what's happening. Because if you only read one abstract every six months from one article, then you're not really understanding the work that's continuing to be done on a daily basis to continue to beef up that evidence base that we rely on to create our jobs and secure our jobs and maintain our jobs over time. So I think it's it can be overwhelming to think about reading articles if you're not a person that naturally ingests those and understands them, but there are so many more resources out there that help you to understand what's going on in these articles and how the research works and what the findings mean and all of that. So yeah. I think the accessibility is better than it's ever been. So hopefully that helps people to feel um, less intimidated about reading it for themselves and trying to understand it so that they can. Yeah defend their jobs if needed or create new jobs or just continue to do the education and advocacy that is a daily part of being a music therapist these days. <laughs> it really is. And I know so. people get very tired with that, just advocating and explaining what music therapy is uh, on a daily basis. So mm -hmm. then having to also be an advocate for the effect or the impact or the worth of it, whatever you want to, however you want to look at it can also be quite tiring. It is, but it's, it's important. And if you can balance it, what we find at my private practice is that we do a certain amount of free demonstration when we are confident that the impact is going to communicate enough for someone to sign on for a service. So occasionally we'll do a free session at a group home with one person and invite all of the staff to come to the session. And then after they've seen it, then they sign on afterwards. They just 
they understand what it is that we're talking about. And we always provide the information and the research first in that initial conversation and say, this is what music therapy is, this is what it does. And then if we feel that sort of hesitance behind signing on, then sometimes we'll offer this demonstration and say, why don't, why don't we come and just show you what it looks like? Um, and it almost always results in someone saying, yeah, I, I do see the value in that. I do want that service. So, And that's a form of evidence, I would argue, in itself. And often the most poignant form of evidence is someone's personal experience of it, either being invited in like that, having a coworker who's a music therapist, or having family experience, or going through uh, oneself as a client. So it, it's also important for music therapists to realize that that is also legitimate too. It's not just randomized controlled trials, or it's not just um, people with PhDs doing research studies. There's all forms of ways of substantiating the worth of what we do. Um, and ideally it would be a lot more often substantiated by the users of music therapy themselves. And that's something that we have in Norway, a, a much stronger presence and valuing of user perspectives and involvement and um, generation of research ideas and projects and being involved in that as well. So yeah, that's some way that um, my horizons have grown since mm -hmm. I've been here. Well, and I think that might be a valuable thing to explain to our listeners because you do a certain type of research that maybe not everybody knows or understands the phenomenological research. So would you feel comfortable maybe kind of giving a nutshell explanation of what that type of research is and, and why you do that research? Sure. Yeah. So I have two, well, I have multiple <laughs> identities <laughs> as a researcher. It's hard for me to decide where to go. I feel like one can be plural as a researcher too, that doesn't have to decide, okay, I'm just going to mm -hmm. go in one direction or another. But I think the methodology that maybe is most um, close to my heart and interests is something in the realm of um, interpretive or hermeneutic phenomenology, where together with someone who's experienced a phenomenon that you're interested in looking closer at, you dialogue and co-create an understanding of what that experience was. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that process of reflecting back on a phenomenon changes that, that becomes its own phenomenon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the intentionality and, and, and perceiving something. Um, but I also feel like it's a very rich way to look at research. So an example um, from the past is when I, myself as a music therapist, um, when I wanted to start working in a medical hospital, there weren't any positions available. <laughs> so I was in contact with one hospital and they said, okay, well, you know, the best you can do is maybe learn, um, get training in child life uh, as, a, as a profession and you can do an internship here. And then during that time, while you're working in a fellowship as a child life specialist, you can uh, then be applying for grants for music therapy and maybe eventually we'll get funding for that. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually what I did. And I, I was curious thereafter. So I was a music therapist that eventually did an additional training in child life. Um, at that point in time, you didn't need to have a degree in child life. You could, you could sort of grant, not grandfather in, but you could have equivalency from uh, creative arts therapy or other areas like that, and then do um, a certain amount of internship experience and then sit for an exam. So I got into child life in that direction, but it was an interesting way of thinking and an, a new tool set and a way to connect with people 
uh, that was a little bit different than music therapy. And yet being a music therapist, I came to it in a, in a very specific way, I guess, or a different way. Um, and then I was curious about what then was possible when one was dual trained and practiced in that sort of way and had a practice setting that allowed you as a clinician to decide what is going to be most appropriate. What does the client want or the context need or the family need? And then how can I move through those different aspects of my identity or um, ways I can be with someone uh, in those two different frames? And so I was curious to study that, not just because I thought it was interesting in practice to sort of meld these and find new opportunities through having both types of education. I was curious about other music therapists who were dual certified and did they practice uh, in a way that aligned most as a music therapist or a child life specialist or some combination of both. And mm -hmm. so I um, conducted as part of my doctoral studies a um, hermeneutic phenomenological study on IPA uh, interpretive phenomenological analysis uh, study that looked at people who had this dual types of training. Um, and so that type of research, you, you're generally doing semi-structured interviews and having very rich conversations with people that are fairly open-ended, allow them to go into reflecting on a phenomenon. You might have something like audio recordings or some sort of um, data or artifact that they're responding to, to, to bring them to a space or a time, or you might ask them to reflect on something in advance or or just come in and, and, and reflect to the questions that are coming up um, and following up with that. But the idea is that you get into exploring together someone's experience of something that they live through. So in this case, they lived through being a dual certified child life specialist and music therapist. And what was that experience like for them? And I'm not assuming because of my, again, my epistemological framework, I'm not assuming that each person has the same experience and we're going to get down to the one experience that's universal. It's more of like, here are all of the participants are going to all come with their unique contexts and experiences. And we're going to try to understand what did it mean for them and then see what things start to um, converge to some degree or resonate between their accounts in which things are very individual and specific and not reflected in other people's accounts. And what can this tell us about the range of what is experienced and possible? Um, so that feels like a always a very fascinating way of um, doing research uh, for me. And then also when you're analyzing the data, it gets very rich because the, the descriptions are so real. They're coming from the people who have been through it and they get to decide what it is to them. It's not, yeah. not me deciding, but of course, as the researcher, uh, I'm interpreting and, and doing my own level of sort of understanding and meaning making on top of what they've done in the interview. Well, and there's so much value in people just being able to tell their story and share their own experience, not just the experience itself, but the reflection on the experience afterwards yeah, can be exactly. really powerful too. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that would be a great transition for us, for you to be able to reflect on your experience, experience. now as an expat <laughs> and researcher, I'd really love to kind of talk about what that process was like for you to come to be in Norway and live there, work there, just what has that been like for you? Maybe we could start with what made you want to explore becoming an expat and we can kind of yeah. go from there. Um, so I am in a long-term relationship, which means that I'm not an independent <laughs> operator. <laughs> um, so it was 
after the I finished my PhD, I moved back to New York uh, and and worked there for a couple more years, um, and did sort of the academic thing on the side um, as uh, an adjunct professor and thought, okay, this is maybe what I'm gonna need to do because there aren't that many academic programs in the United States. If you think of other fields of study or clinical positions, there's not that many mm. um, positions. There's not that many universities that have dedicated time set aside for research or prioritize that. And um, for my husband, who's an architect and a musician, he needed to be in an, a cultural environment and a sort of aesthetic environment that could inspire him in his areas of pursuit. <laughs> um, so for a while he had said, you know, if you can find a position in Europe or something, maybe we could consider that um, mm -hmm. because his, yeah, his family comes from Europe. And um, of course, Scandinavian architecture is, is quite stimulating and, and uh, nice for people like that. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there was an opportunity at, at University of Bergen in Norway that came open and I was sort of joking like, oh, this would be my dream job. There's an excellent research milieu there. They have all different types of research that they do. Um, wonderful complement of colleagues there. Uh, but I, and there's teaching obviously involved as well, but I said, I realized you know, that's a huge move for him to do as my mm -hmm. partner, but he was willing to, um, to test it out. So luckily he came for the interview and then uh, we decided that maybe it was something we could try. It, it was difficult coming from, we came from New York City. Um, yeah. So moving from New York City to most other places is difficult when you become mm -hmm. accustomed to what's available culturally and with um, diversity there, um, the backgrounds, everything to also to what you can eat and <laughs> experience um, is quite broad. Um, so it was important that we were in a milieu or in a, in a city here that had a very strong cultural presence and a wonderful music scene and, and other aspects that we value engaging in in our, our personal lives. Um, and Bergen really has that, even though it's a tiny, tiny town <laughs> compared to New York City. It's like a little village to us. <laughs> um, but it's also very rich and cosmopolitan in a way because it is the second largest city in Norway. So there, there's a lot of mix of things that are going on here and wonderful arts programs um, and music and, and opportunities here. So we've actually attended some of the most fantastic concerts we've ever experienced in our lives here, wow. often because it's smaller venues and you can get closer to the artists mm -hmm. and very good sound quality in, in a lot of venues. So we've had some wonderful experiences here. That's awesome. Yeah. So I wonder what kind of what were kind of the initial barriers then you kind of expressed your concerns with the cultural um, aspect moving from New York specifically, but what other things did you kind of run into when you were figuring this out? Yeah, I, I guess we figured any move was going to be difficult, but it it takes a huge amount of effort actually to make a longer term international move, um, especially from the United States, <laughs> for example, with the tax situation, <laughs> um, we have to, of course, report tax every year, even though we don't have any income in the United States, and it's still a 72 or something page tax form that we're <laughs> returning, even though we have no income in the United States, and that'll be the same throughout the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some technicalities like that, that you it takes a lot um, to figure out how to transfer some of the logistical aspects of having the ID number here in Norway that you need to enter the country and the residence permits and things worked out. 
uh, the rights to work and, and so forth, but then also banking and um, all of that stuff. So there were a lot of logistic things that we had to figure out a lot of it on our own and using the internet. And mm -hmm. there are expat groups um, in Norway. There's one a Facebook group even, and there's several blogs and online resources for uh, specifically American expats in Norway. So that, that helps to see people have gone through the same situation. And I think that probably pertains to other countries too, where you can do a lot of research now with the internet that wasn't originally that information available to um, decades in the past. Um, so some of that logistic challenge, there was also a bit of the language. Um, I have to say though, the threshold is lower here to, to moving as someone who never knew Norwegian mm -hmm. um, before coming here because there are English instruction is mandatory in the school starting from elementary school. So, mm -hmm. um, generally they say if someone's below 70 something or above seven years of age, uh, then they have been in that system to learn English that they at least can understand you almost perfectly everything you say in English, if not also speak um, impeccable English. Um, not all Norwegians want to have to do that, but um, right. generally they're very, very skilled uh, at English writing and, and reading and understanding. Um, so that's that's um, maybe an advantage if you're moving here as an English speaker. Um, at the same time, I think it's very important when everyone is an expat to to have a good amount of cultural humidity, humility um, to make sure that you're not expecting your culture and way of doing things to have to be enforced when you're coming into someone else's culture and background. Mm -hmm. So um, being open to self-reflecting and understanding what is it that I'm bringing into the situation that might not match here. And even though I'm generally a fairly um, quiet person and generally listen pretty well, I think my time in New York made me a little <laughs> bit more willing than in a, in a meeting I might blurt out like, oh, I have a question or could you say that again or something like that. Um, and I thought I was doing it as a way to engage and under, make sure I really understand some, uh, my Norwegian colleagues, what they were saying. But I realized pretty quickly mm -hmm. that you don't, you don't ever <laughs> interrupt when someone is speaking. It's terrible. It's terribly rude. Um, instead, you wait very patiently till they're finished. And then you ask for the word. You raise your finger. There are certain finger symbols, depending on whether you have a new topic or whether you're just responding to what someone has just said. Um, but you don't ask for clarification in the middle of what someone's saying. You need to wait. And then later you can ask that afterwards. And so I, with the way my brain works, I sort of lose track of where I was. So I had to start writing things down like, oh, I have to ask about that <laughs> because I wouldn't remember that when it came time to actually ask questions or take the word or whatnot. So even things like that about how do meetings work and how do people share the word and what is most important here uh, a Norwegian might feel more comfortable physically bumping into you and not say anything because that's not, but if they, if you interrupt them when they're speaking, that is perceived just as rude or inappropriate as if someone bumps into you for us, where it's like, oh, watch your personal space, like say right. excuse me or something, <laughs> no, it's not comfortable. Um, so even just small cultural variations like that are important to be aware of what am I doing in this context that is different? What are other people doing? How do things operate here? Yeah. Um, and being sort of humble about coming to that space. And part of that humility was also uh, doing myself, uh, doing my best and trying to be um, vulnerable myself to try to learn the language mm -hmm. as soon as I could and, and really trying to throw myself into that. So um, 
that it wasn't enforcing a language that I feel most comfortable in, but maybe other people uh, in Norway don't feel most comfortable in English. So yeah. um, having yeah. to be in that vulnerable place myself. Do you think, would you feel comfortable um, defining music therapy in Norwegian for us right now? Like, could you just nah, say I, quick? <laughs> <laughs> I don't no. feel comfortable defining music therapy at all, so. <laughs> No, no, no uh, elevator speech from you today. Okay, that's all right. I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll say something later, but <laughs> okay, you can think about it. I'm just curious to hear to hear it to hear something music therapy speak, um, just because I I think it would be fascinating. But did you come across all of this cultural knowledge pretty organically, or did you seek out a mentor or those groups? Did you rely on those groups? Kind of what what else did you do to kind of understand the do's and don'ts of, of where you're living? Um, th there was a wonderful person who worked for the university here uh, in a center for international mobility, mm. which I thought that's an interesting. Yeah. <laughs> some, some of the ways that they translate things into English are a little bit different uses of them um, that I think are interesting. Uh, so that one was, I thought, oh, should I be mobile? Should I keep moving? <laughs> <laughs> move here for a while, move somewhere else. But I think because there are a lot, there's a huge amount of um, researchers that come from other countries that work in Norway. And part of that is because they need to, it's a very small country. Um, so they have to bring in PhD candidates and others from other areas to sort of fill all the needs. Um, but because of that, then the, there's a lot of people that are curious and don't know the language or don't know the customs or um, the norms and that sort of thing. So there was a wonderful person who worked there who was very helpful in the first couple of months or years to explain some things or put us in contact with resources. Otherwise, my immediate colleagues have been very helpful when it comes to uh, appreciating finer points of the language and all the cultural aspects that lie behind the language. There are actually two written languages here, one that's more influenced by the Danish and the time when um, Denmark was ruling Norway. And then there's one that's more um, used on the west side of Norway that is uh, was reassembled Norwegian from older times um, by someone who went around and tried to gather all the dialects and put that into um, a written language to try to reduce that influence of the the privileged Danish wow. <laughs> that seeped into Norwegian. So it's not just uh, one written language and one spoken language. There's mm -hmm. these two written languages and then countless dialects that either align more with one of the written languages or the other one. So that makes it quite difficult when you're trying to understand people speaking Norwegian. And there are some dialects that are so divergent that Norwegians with these different dialects, when they're asked to do collaborate on a project, like build a, um, a sandcastle or something, or like build this project, and then they have to describe things together to each other in their dialects that they don't understand each other either. So wow. <laughs> it's uh, it can be very challenging internally. So that makes a bit of a barrier, but I think it is quite important to to try to open up and and yeah, learn it as best one can. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine you would have trouble feeling at home if you never learned the language. Like always that, feel a little bit on the outside of certain yeah, things. Yeah, that was definitely a case for, case for us. And I think we also try to make a point of not, not only or not, um, 
predominantly uh, befriending and seeking out Americans um, because we wanted to make sure that we got to know socially Norwegians and understood more what is it like to live here and their backgrounds and we were very curious and open to learning about people and and what's influencing them so I think that helped a bit because then we started having a lot of socialization or socializing in Norwegian that helped with the language development so they our friends were very patient as we went through that awkward transition mm -hmm. of many years of like uh, you know, long dinner parties where they could speak Norwegian and we could say a little bit. <laughs> and then eventually at a certain point in the evening, it switches to English because we get very tired and right. <laughs> Norwegian disappears. Wow. Well, it sounds complicated, but doable. So that's encouraging to hear that even a language that I would deem more intimidating, like I would probably sooner learn Italian or French than, um, than Norwegian, but it sounds like you know, you're making it work and you're learning it. So I'm curious, especially thinking about the language, was that a challenge when it came to conducting research or were there other barriers that were more difficult in researching there? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I think it took about three and a half years of living here and really trying from the first semester, uh, we took three consecutive semesters of um, Norwegian instruction. So I was trying from the first semester to read it, understand it, speak some as much as I could, but it really took about three and a half years before I felt any hope of one day becoming fairly fluent <laughs> and then the whole first three and a half years was feeling hopeless but trying <laughs> trying as hard as I could um but then sticking with it then it finally comes and partly a bit of that is because Norwegians are so good at English that in a store or something like that they'll very quickly switch over to, to English when they realize that you're struggling or if you even make a face that like I didn't quite hear you or something like that then they'll switch um, so tip from my husband was to ask um, ask something in Norwegian that's like one more time please or could you say that again um, in Norwegian and then people just automatically if you say it sort of fast enough and then they'll just say it in Norwegian again um, versus if you just look at them confused they'll switch to English or they'll slow it down or they'll say it louder or something like that and for me I often have trouble when I can't hear um, conversation so it's very difficult at lunch breaks, for example, if I'm chewing <laughs> um, or that sort of thing, it's just enough that I can't do figure ground and can't hear what people are saying. Um, so that's that was a challenge. Um, but I think research, it in, I would say it influenced decisions with research. I think it was more of a challenge with teaching mm. um, because the first semester, my colleague, we co-taught a little bit um, and he was asking the students, okay, can you please speak in English for Claire? Because obviously she doesn't understand any Norwegian whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and they were a little bit like, okay, <laughs> if we have to. And I didn't realize how much they were quietly with flat affect, we would say, <laughs> passive face, um, resisting that. It's very, very subtle here. The, um, expressing yourself is often done in a very articulate way, I feel here. Um, in a very reasoned way, not so much in an impassioned way, unless someone is drinking alcohol, and then it becomes very loud and impassioned. Um, <laughs> so these things are very subtle, especially working with students. It's very subtle to see how they're, are they engaged at all? You don't get the same feedback as you do with 
uh, I experienced with American students where you could tell very quickly, are they bored or are they like, hey, this is great. And you'd have a lot of um, seeing that on their faces and how you interacted with them. So I think teaching was difficult. And after the first semester, I just said, okay, you all speak in Norwegian and um, I'll speak in English because I can't say enough in Norwegian, but let's see how this goes. <laughs> And and honestly, I, I couldn't understand what they were saying sometimes, um, but I got sort of a, it was sort of like a gestalt thing where I could feel like a, a general gist of what they were saying. And I also realized that sometimes people just need the space and that here they're very good at working collaboratively and um, constructively together in, in groups. So if you could just structure the instruction and the teaching so that they're sharing with each other and sharing something important and furthering each other's thought process, um, yeah. then you could get over that hump of like, okay, I think I missed that. Um, but something important is happening here and we developed that. So we actually sort of co-created some understanding and I got a lot from them. Um, maybe they got something from me. <laughs> Um, but yeah. it was it was definitely like a, a shared space. But then they opened up when they got to speak in their mother tongue and weren't forced to speak something that they didn't necessarily want to. It was such a huge difference. And then I also felt a big shift again in teaching when I switched to trying to speak Norwegian for most of my teaching. And I felt like it was very rudimentary um, language that I had and was very um, basic and boring. But things that I explained very carefully in English in the preceding semesters and had lots and lots of questions. I explained them in very elementary uh, Norwegian and had no questions. So somehow like, the amount of information was uh, simple enough that it got through. And so I realized, okay, I guess I, I guess I'm communicating something if people aren't having questions and they're understanding what I'm saying. Um, so that opened up to trying even more um, teaching. So I primarily teach in Norwegian. Sometimes I have to switch to English if there's something I just can't describe. Um, and then they're always speaking Norwegian to me. Mm -hmm. But with research, um, the challenge was that I, I'm used to doing research that's more on a level of um, exploring something that I'm interested in from practice. Mm -hmm. And then in my doctorate, I was, I was the music therapist and the researcher simultaneously. And that's very interesting for me. I like to sort of be present and consider this. Uh, what I'm, you know, asking other people to do or uh, what's evolving in the in the process of music therapy and how mm -hmm. um, people make sense of that. So it, when I thought of doing research, it did impact me when I moved to Bergen for the in the first place. Um, I've been quite interested in intensive care settings in pediatrics and mostly those patients are being shipped over to Oslo if they have, you know, mm. an emergent trauma that's that's that intense. And otherwise, it's just a very small unit here. So some of my expectations of who I might do research with varied depending on or changed based on what was actually available here. Mm -hmm. um, and so I moved into a little bit more into this area of neonatal um, intensive care music therapy and music therapy. Yeah, in that context with parents, because I have research collaborators here at my research center who have backgrounds in that area or in methodology, and we very early on thought, okay, what areas can we actually collaborate in while I don't have the language mm -hmm. um, at this point? And it seemed like that was a natural place to begin. So I moved sort of predominantly into that area because we were successful with grant funding and, and could collaborate on that. But I did want, when there was a chance to do a feasibility study, I was actually a music therapist working with some uh, few families in, in Bergen here and yeah. was able to try out 
what we were suggesting doing in our intervention and do that in person. Yeah, so, so yeah, so it's impacted sort of who and what I can do at that point. Now it's broadening a little bit more as I, I get more of the language. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you're figuring it out and you're making it sound like a really wonderful place to exist. So are you recruiting anyone to come? To <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yes, because um, we were lucky enough that we got funding again from the Research Council of Norway to do a project that pivots on some of the data that we have from our study long step. We have some videos that we're able to look at and microanalysis. So we're going to look very carefully at interactions between parents and their infants when they're using music therapy. How are they using their voices and how mm -hmm. are they um, contributing to mutual regulation and calming the infant down in the intensive care setting. So uh, I will be uh, will be <laughs> announcing a position for a PhD student, Ooh. actually, <laughs> for your position um, wow. that will be announced, I think, um, in Norwegian and English and probably sometime in the new year will be announced and we'll be hoping to fill that in August or September this coming year. Well, congratulations so like that. Yeah. And, and I can say if there are other um, music therapists or other students who are interested in studying in Norway, mm -hmm. um, it's in some ways, if you want to do it at the master's level, at least for our program, we are still a Norwegian speaking program. So mm -hmm. students have to know Norwegian and meet the language competency before they start studying in the program. So that makes it a lot more restrictive when people want to do study abroad with us at the master's level. At the PhD level, that doesn't apply. So you can come even if you don't know Norwegian um, mm -hmm. and apply for positions and potentially get appointed a position. And the nice thing about that is there is a living wage, uh, which which is different than in the United States. Yes. A lot of music therapy PhD positions, it's not yeah. a living wage. Uh, it's very difficult to do financially. Here it is at a very decent wage. Um, and you're treated as a uh, as they do all employees here. <laughs> um, it, it's a good quality of uh, the working environment and the mm -hmm. rights that you have as a worker. So that that is definitely um, definitely a positive. Yeah. Has that influenced you, the things that you're noticing people value there or place importance on? Has that changed things that you value over time by living there, just culturally and otherwise? Um, yes, I would I would say so. I mean, generally, Norway is a social democracy. A lot of the parties are social democratic, uh, if not further shades of leftist, socialist and so forth. Um, so definitely there's more of a concern and acknowledgement that one needs to be concerned about one's fellow human, um, and the environment, but that there's, it is a, a welfare state. So there is a very good, um, health offer that's available here to everyone who lives here, um, where you can get healthcare without having to pay exorbitant amounts for it. Um, but that also education, for example, is provided by the state. There are some fees, but essentially tuition is, is covered. So you have the right to secondary education to university, uh, regardless of your background. So there are some things that we or I value and then um, are more stable aspects of what the government enforces here and what the regulation enables. So that that's very positive to me. I feel like I can make a contribution here that's consistent and live in a place that's consistent with my values mm -hmm. um, and my beliefs. Um, and as far as music therapy, there are a lot of um, that 
more collectivist in a way or more socially oriented, community oriented focus mm -hmm. that I think exists in Norway um, also pervades into the music therapy approaches. And I think in Norway, it's it's developed over time by having these very small communities that were across, you know, a mountain and a fjord from the next one. Mm -hmm. And they had their own dialects and married each other. And <laughs> it yeah. was very difficult to travel to other places. Um, you know, you had to wait for the ice or something for certain <laughs> activities to go over the ice and and whatnot. So um, it, there was a lot of isolation and people had to depend on each other to to exist. And so some of those concepts like the dugnad is like um, a collaborative effort. Whenever there's something that needs to be done, you all pitch in and everyone just donates time and, and makes it happen. So that might happen at your apartment building. Okay, we're going to have a dugnad today and everyone's going to work and clean up all the flower beds and clean up, you know, other aspects of the building or we have it in the university like tidy things up and and so people are used to okay some efforts we just have to come together and help each other uh and I, so I think that goes back to that history of being you know farming communities and you have to you have to raise a barn or you have to do something else it's like we need everyone to come together and make this happen so mm -hmm. that comes also into the focus in music therapy where there's less focus on music therapy as a one-to-one -one treatment in a very private, isolated setting and more of a community focus in understanding that music is a resource for health for everyone. Um, it shouldn't be made to be exclusive and that we should also question some of this expertise of the music therapist. Is that really helpful to create this division between the therapist and the user, or the client, or aren't we all users <laughs> of music. <laughs> um, so some of that aspect of resource orient, uh, orientation wow. with Randy Rolfjord, my colleague, um, and cultural-centered uh, perspectives and community music therapy with Brinjol, for example, Stiga, uh, are filtering into ways that I'm thinking also of music therapy and, and medical contexts and purposely wanting to sort of turn things on its head or question some of the practices that privilege the expertise of the music therapist. And I think especially in, in the United States, because of um, the way the healthcare system works and because of the prioritization of expertise and um, consumerism, <laughs> um, <laughs> capitalism <laughs> as a structure that, that really pervades everything, the health system and everything there, education, um, that I think obviously in the United States, music therapists have decided for the most part to try to distinguish themselves from other professionals, from um, non-music therapists uh, who use music in a therapeutic way to try to retain their spot in the profession and um, strengthen their identity and um, have their territory. And I understand why that's arisen there. Um, in Norway here, we don't have authorization. We Right now, we don't have certification or anything like that. Um, right now, there are guidelines that recommend music therapy in certain contexts, for example, for people who have psychosis. And there, that's based on research that we have that's showing um, good effects, multiple impacts of music therapy. Um, so then there's a recommendation that it should be available for people who want it. So it, it's, again, all about the user. What does the user of the health system want in their offer of health? What contributes to their health? Do they think music therapy is something that would be helpful? If so, they need to have access to services. So here it's more of a right that people have the right to health care and they have the right to be deciding what helps make them healthy instead of having these experts dictate what makes that person healthy. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I wish I hope for us that we can become more client led and resource oriented as time goes on, because the longer that I've practiced, the more that I've realized how valuable that really is. Um, I had an opportunity to work with Afghan refugees and they basically led the session and it was amazing because I wasn't able to sing in their language or you know use their instruments but they were able to take what I brought and show me how they would use the music and what the music meant to them and and they danced and I don't dance so it was like it was awesome to just like watch them take what was in front of them and share their culture with me and teach me something and to just remove myself as an expert because I I knew 100% I was not an expert in that situation. But even in a typical situation with another person who's similar to myself who's seeking music therapy, I'm finding more and more the benefit of really letting them lead more of what's going on and really tell me what they need as opposed to me assuming based off the data that I've been given prior to meeting them, what do they need? And I think there's importance in having that uh, research and more of that cognitive behavioral stuff there. But at the end of the day, humans connecting with other humans and recognizing each other's value is just such a powerful thing. And so I think that's really amazing that the culture over there appreciates that. Yeah. And what you're pointing to now is just recognizing our own situatedness. And if you're working with people from a different cultural background where music means something different or health means something different mm -hmm. than who are we to impose or you know, who am I to impose what I think is health or, or music on someone else, especially if that research is normed on a totally different group or people with different background or, right. you know, majority status in a country, then um, it can't necessarily apply. So it is foremost, I think music therapy for me is about making relationships with people and then with mm -hmm. music as well and figuring out together in collaboration how music can be helpful. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, so exciting. I love hearing about what you're doing over there and everything that you're learning and sharing with the world because I personally think that you are a gift to our profession and I'm just so happy to hear that you're doing well over there and continuing to do exciting things. Thank so you. that's very generous of you. Thank you for talking with us today because I've learned a lot and I feel really inspired, but I would love it if you could maybe um, impart some wisdom on our listeners as we close our conversation. So is there any advice that you would give to someone either who's considering becoming an expatriate or considering more of a research path, anything that you would want to tell to someone um, who's thinking about those things? Yeah, gosh, that's a big question in itself. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I would say don't assume you're not the right person. <laughs> That's uh, immediately what I thought when this job opening came up. I thought, A, they already have someone that they know that they want to uh, apply for this position, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. B, <laughs> uh, they need someone with Norwegian language experience, and I don't have it at all. So I have, you know, they, they would not want me. It would be ridiculous. Um, so I, I really thought that was true until actually my friend mentioned she had been here with her um, Anita Swanson had been there with her students before. And she's like, no, that's not how it works over there. They're, 
basically bilingual and <laughs> very open. And they also use a lot of um, English language music, I guess, in music therapy. Um, so she said, yeah, like, try it. And, and I actually... <laughs> And I did. Um, and then it was a, it turned out to be an opportunity. So I think don't prematurely sort of shut down your opportunities. Um, but then if you do get a chance, I would I do suggest trying to really be open to questioning your own self and assumptions and background and and having that process to be humble um, uh, culturally and to go into a situation to be willing to learn and to be willing to be the one who needs to learn and who doesn't uh doesn't have power um or you know probably obviously I, I came to that as an American and a white woman you know from a middle class background as a as having power so I, I realized I came in in a privileged position uh coming into that particular position but I think one needs to be open to learning and taking in the culture ideally and not just hoping to live in your same mm -hmm. culture that you come from in a different country i feel like what's yeah. the point just yep. staying where you are then <laughs> you're just making it complicated open for no or reason. change or be uncomfortable yeah um and then also that that piece with the logistics there are a lot of logistics that you have to work through uh that will not end um after you live there <laughs> like taxes for example it's very difficult um also with thinking about saving for retirement and other aspects like that. It gets very, very difficult. So there are some very real um, obstacles that one has to think through, um, but it's definitely possible. And so try things, think about it carefully, become educated. Um, yeah, and go for those uh, opportunities because they're definitely out there. And I, there's definitely a lot of cross-pollinization that can happen when people move out of their comfort zone and go into a new area. Mm -hmm. um, they can learn a lot and they can also bring new perspectives too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Sage advice. You did great. Sage advice. I love it. <laughs> All right. Can I put you on the spot with one more question? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so you've managed to stay in the same field this whole time. There's been some changes to kind of your specific role within music therapy, but what have you done for yourself to sort of maintain that longevity in maintaining this as a career? For yourself because we see a lot of burnout i wonder if yeah. it's maybe more in the us than it is in norway but in general kind of what have you done to stay with it no that that's hard because i'm kind of at a point in my career where i i feel like okay this is the one life i have and however <laughs> many remaining years so i have actually thought about do i need to do something more not like in quantity but on a more global scale or mm -hmm. um lately i've been concerned with women's rights or rights to education or you know and so it's like is there should I do something more with human rights out there than I'm doing right now um and and that's hard to decide obviously <laughs> people are educated in that and spend their whole careers becoming more relevant in that area so I might not be very re relevant but it is you know it's something that I still struggle with is yeah. is this doing enough in the world that has so many areas where uh, humans are suffering and animals mm -hmm. are suffering and the planet is, could there be some other use of my energies? Mm -hmm. um, so that's a piece of it. I think um, for me, it's also trying to find meaning. Um, my internship supervisor, one of them for my music therapy internship 
was always saying Molly Richter. She was always saying, <laughs> make it meaningful. <laughs> like that's the most important thing. Like, was it meaningful? Yes. And I think <laughs> that's always stayed with me that is there a positive effect with research or not? Or, you know, were you surprised or not surprised? Or did mm-hmm. things fall apart or not? It's like, well, was it meaningful? And who who is it meaningful to? And the person engaging in it, or sometimes it's the meaning comes from all around it. So we found that in our long step study that it it wasn't necessarily meaningful when it when we looked at the outcome measures, but then so many things happened where music therapists were hired and families were using music and having a new relationship with their infants in a way that we were hoping they would mm-hmm. develop from music therapy. So, so many things were happening. People were getting education and research or leading research like I was and so forth. Mm-hmm. So many things came out of that and were afforded by that study um, that were meaningful, that went far beyond what we thought the meaning of a study would be. So I think maybe for music therapists, it's figuring out what is meaningful for you um, in music therapy and what does that look like? And you have to develop and you have to evolve, I think, um, as a music therapist and as a human primarily to be able to sort of get through this very difficult life that we're all in. (laughs) And yeah, obviously some of us are struggling more than others. Um, but I think the human condition is to struggle and be uncomfortable. It's like, how can we find meaning in that and, and tie that into what we do? Yeah, absolutely. I think what I kind of hear sort of threaded throughout this conversation and thinking about research and everything that you've done, just the ability to kind of zoom out for a minute and see the bigger picture of something and then reflect on that to see if you need to do something else. Do you need to pivot? Do you need to try something new? Um, Do you need to get some new training or Um, read a book or just try something else because I found because we are such a niche field that it's very easy to become really insular and I think that contributes to the burnout too when your world gets really small and you don't see everything else that's happening around you so I think that's kind of one of the things I'm hearing you say a lot in different ways throughout this conversation is just being able to really reflect and ask questions and think about what's going on that's bigger than what you're doing in this specific moment. So yeah, I, I'm feeling yeah. really inspired by everything that you're there's, saying today. <laughs> there's a piece of that. And there's also just back to burnout. I, like you said, this is so real for so many people I know in any helping profession really, but also in music therapy, because we have to do that piece of always advocating for what do we do? Why mm-hmm. is it meaningful what we do? Why should we exist? <laughs> we have to do that every single day and also <laughs> educators and researchers in this field. So I think it's important to think about what is the self-care and what feeds you as a person and to also be open to that that might not come from music or music in addition to something else. And I I think for me, one of my best self-care things is actually to go climbing, which is a a physical thing. It's also a problem solving thing. And it it totally engages my mind um, because I have to be thinking about everything I'm doing. It's just my body in a wall and Mm -hmm. to not fall (laughs) or injure myself. I have to be focusing on that. And, And I've been really surprised at how helpful that is to me in so many different ways, because it is sort of an antithesis of what I do every day when I sit at a computer or I'm teaching or something where I'm especially the research part where I end up sitting a lot and working with words 
um, and very and, and reading texts and writing texts and answering emails and that sort of thing, and to use the whole body um, and in a way that completely absorbs your attention. For me, that's something that that helps in a way that I, playing music and engaging in music also is helpful for me, but it doesn't somehow use things in such a different way. And so I think maybe if music therapists also opened up to think about self-care, yeah, but really push yourself to figure out it's beyond just having coffee or taking a break or 10 minutes or meditation or something, but find something that really feeds you and expands and uses your body and your mind and your soul or whatever you need to use (laughs) in a different way um, that can really complement your everyday. And I think that can help with longevity as well, just as in whatever your, your type of work is to to deal with that stress and that strain. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, thank you so much, Claire. I think this has been a really awesome conversation and I'm just really happy for you where you've landed and what you're doing. So thank you. I feel very fortunate to have had this chance. I mean, we miss you here because like I said, (laughs) you're you're a gift and I would love to see you you more. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And now also, yeah. Also with uh, the environment now, it gets more and more hard to warrant going back to the United States more than once a year. Yeah. Uh, so that's also a thing. But we might have now after COVID, we might have a lot more digital interactions. Yeah. And to, you said that at some point, you said the music therapy world feels very big. To me, it feels very, very small <laughs> because <laughs> of connecting and maybe with the work I do at Voices, the journal too, of connecting with people in all sorts mm-hmm. of countries that it just feels like a tiny field where a lot of us know each other. Not obviously not everyone. Yes. I mean, it's all Mm -hmm. relative, right? Compared to other professions, certainly. (laughs) But yeah, I just have to remind myself that I'm, I'm not alone and that there are more people just like me who are going through similar things that I can reach out to and talk to. And, and that's why I love our podcast. We get to help people connect with people outside of themselves who are doing similar or different things that they can learn from and be inspired by. And so I'm really glad that we got to do this today and and share you with everyone. (laughs) So am I. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks for tuning in to Music Therapy and Beyond. For show notes from today's episode, head to our website, musictherapyandbeyond.com. And while you're there, check out our shop. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe to share our work on all platforms. And don't forget to tune in every Monday for another great episode. We'll see you next time.